You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, welcome to the Human Rights Talks podcast. Today, I'm delighted to host Caitlin Thompson, uh, a reporter at Coda Story. This discussion is part of a special series on digital authoritarianism. It's an initiative supported by the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Hi, Marie. I'm so excited to have this conversation. I'm very happy to talk digital authoritarianism anytime. Yeah, it's a lovely uh, subject for Friday. Um, yeah. <laughs> first off, uh, uh, could you tell me Sorry. a little bit perhaps about Coda Story? Because I've been following your work mm-hmm. for quite a while. And I think you you and your co- colleagues really focus on, on, on interesting subjects that perhaps people don't often read about in mainstream media in a way. Yeah, yes. So CODA is a nonprofit newsroom that started in around 2017. And we were founded by two veteran foreign correspondents, uh, Natalia Antalava and Ilan Greenberg. And CODA is built on this understanding that when we focus on the headlines, when we focus on what's happening in the moment, we very often miss how we got there. So CODA is meant to combat that. Our Mm -hmm. goal is to provide context and continuity and to help our readers understand that the things that are happening now are happening for a reason. It's part of a broader trend, an undercurrent that's driving uh, the news that we see today. So in light of that, we focus on the way that we would frame it as sort of the overarching trends that are shaping politics and society. These days, that is disinformation, the war on science, and the rise of digital authoritarianism. Those are the three topics that we cover. All of those topics are, unfortunately for the world, very, very relevant right now. And we've seen that play out in the war in Ukraine. We've seen it play out in the pandemic. And Coda's philosophy about how we approach journalism has made us uniquely capable Um, and uniquely equipped to see things, see the trends that have shaped these last, say, you know, last few years, sort of before other newsrooms really caught on. Mm -hmm. Well, and and, and, um, I I encourage everyone to to subscribe to your own newsletter, which is titled Authoritarian Tech. Um, What is your aim of the of your newsletter in particular? And how do you go about kind of writing it? Because there's a lot of content. Yeah, honestly have way too much fun writing this newsletter. <laughs> it's, uh, for me, a real opportunity to lean into things that I am curious about and uh, the people that I speak to on a regular basis are curious about. And it's, I hope, uh, not too um, too much of a uh, indulging my, my nerdy tendencies, but it's really fun to write. Um, My motivation for this newsletter was to have a space to be able to connect the dots between what's happening in different parts of the world in terms of the evolution of digital authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing technology fuel authoritarianism and undermine democracy in a lot of different ways, but there are common themes that are uh, Sorry, I'll start that over to make it easy for your editor. 
there are common themes that resonate across regions. So a simple example that I've been watching in Venezuela, the government just launched a new homegrown social media app called Ven app. And it's basically like something like Telegram. There's room for chat rooms and messaging. And that sort of homegrown social media app, like very localized, not big Silicon Valley apps is something we've mm. seen happening a lot in Russia. And that's something my colleagues at Coda and I have been tracking. We've written about it in the authoritarian tech newsletter. Uh, Russia has put a lot of energy into trying to build its own social media apps that are sort of alternative options to the ones coming out of Silicon Valley. So like RuTube is mm. the video equivalent uh, or the Russian equivalent of YouTube. Um, Creative you know, name. Really, right. <laughs> it's super, it's yeah. Um, I worked really hard on that name. Mm. The app itself runs into all sorts of problems. It's not the most, they've had a really hard time getting people to move over to RuTube. Uh, mm. But so, you know, whether those systems actually take off and people use them is a totally different thing. But I yeah. think what it demonstrates to us is that in different authoritarian countries, we've got this interest from governments, from autocratic leaders to exert even more control over the digital space. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by limiting the access that people have to outside apps mm -hmm. and amplifying their own homegrown apps that they have much more control over. So I guess, um, you know, that's one of the trends that I've been watching with this newsletter. But the reason that I love this newsletter so much and the reason that it's sort of a unique space is that I can do that sort of connect the dots between what's happening here and what's happening around the mm -hmm. world. And then if you read kind of the progression of the newsletters, if you read past editions, if you're a regular reader, you know, this hopefully this trend becomes clearer. For so, sure. um, yeah, so that's one of, that's been one of my big goals is illuminating that sort of, you know, the big trends of digital authoritarianism. Um, other examples of sort of trends that I'm, I'm watching and have loved sticking into in the newsletter, but I also think it's really important to point out that technology is fueling authoritarianism in democracies too. Mm -hmm. It's not just a tool for authoritarians to exert even more control. We are also really seeing uh, seeing democracies lean into this as well. And mm -hmm. huge debate over surveillance technology in the US, for example. For sure. Um, and algorithmic decision making in the UK. These are like massive important conversations and um, at a government level and at a community level. And I think it's important that we don't like frame digital authoritarianism as if only authoritarians are using technology mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to undermine people's rights. It's more like people in power, both in democracies, in um, less democratic societies, but also like corporations and private entities. People in power generally are using technology to erode people's rights. We're also using it to build it up, Yeah, but certainly erosion of those rights is, is a trend. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one thing I want to go into a little bit later on with Clearview AI, for example. But mm -hmm. as we as, as we kind of watch the invasion uh, of Ukraine and the war, 
What has surprised you most, perhaps, about Russia's approach? You know, you were talking about try, Russia trying to have its own like apps and how difficult it is, but then we've cut the, you know, Russia has rejected now Twitter and, and Facebook. Has something surprised you about Russia's like decision making around in, in terms of its digital strategy since the start of the, of, of the war? Yeah, I think, frankly, one of the things that was surprising to me was that a lot of it wasn't actually very surprising to my team at Coda. Mm -hmm. So Coda Stories, you know, as we talked about in the beginning, Coda Stories philosophy is helping us understand, you know, how we got to this moment. And Coda has been focused on Russia and Russian digital authoritarianism and disinformation for, you know, since the very beginning of our newsroom. And I have been just so blown away by how my colleagues have seen things coming before they happened, mm -hmm. in particular in regards to this war. Um, so, you know, we have a, a huge expertise on our staff of, um, you know, people who know a lot about Russian disinformation and Russian hybrid warfare, for example. Mm -hmm. um, in the realm of disinformation, yeah, we've seen trends come up in the last, um, you know, since the invasion in February or this invasion in February, um, that we've, we've certainly seen echoed before. So there was this really weird line that Russia had invaded Ukraine because there were bioweapon labs um, supported by the international community that, you know, were yeah. releasing bioweapons. And that's just like, that's a, that's a really long-standing trend in Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. Um, we've seen it happen. We've seen the country of Georgia get, uh, you know, face that same level or that same threat of disinformation Ukraine's faced before. It's a whole trend. Mm -hmm. And or I think Ukraine has faced it before. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, and the Donbass. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we saw that narrative coming. We knew that was going to happen. And Coda's story could really jump on that and say, like, look, this is not new. Here's some context. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I, I want to highlight is my colleague Natalia Antalava has a newsletter yeah. as well. Yeah. It's called the Disinfo. Well, it's called Disinfo Matters. Uh, and she's right now very focused on the war in Ukraine mm -hmm. um, and the disinformation surrounding it. But she's also very focused on the role that social media platforms are playing in that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she's been highlighting is um, the role of Facebook and Meta in sort of inadvertently silencing uh, independent journalists who are mm -hmm. covering the war in Ukraine through their content moderation policies. Yeah. And what that means, um, or through, uh, you know, disabling their ads accounts so that they can reach a, a much smaller subset, but they can only reach a much smaller subset of their audience. So what that means is that social media companies are inadvertently helping to diminish people's access mm -hmm. to independent factual information. And that just plays into like straight into Putin's hands. For sure. And so my colleague uh, Natalia has been doing a great job staying on that story and really looking into the impact that it has. Her newsletter is fantastic. Her reporting is- Absolutely, um, I agree, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's got lots of experience covering that. One of the things that sort of did kind of stand out to me, and I can't really say that it was a surprise, but I was 
aware of the, like, I didn't expect it to happen so quickly, mm-hmm. um, is Russia's really serious tightening of its control on the internet. And mm-hmm. we've seen the seeds of that, the seeds of that were planted years ago. Yeah. Russia has been historically um, one of the leaders in, in take, the number of takedown requests for social media platforms. It's something Code has been paying attention to for a long time. Um, you know, we talked about Russia trying to build their own social media apps. Um, but I was pretty surprised. You know, I had sort of been watching at the end of 2021. Russia for years has been really interested in this idea of an, a sovereign internet. So that's an internet that's very much blocked off from the rest of the world's internet. It's much more like China's or Iran's and that it's got a pretty um, pretty serious firewall around it, which means the authorities have much more control as to what goes in and out of the country. Yeah. Uh, and Russia has passed that law. In the beginning, it was not very effective whatsoever. Their sovereign, citizens, or their sovereign internet like infrastructure was, was lacking. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something they've really doubled down on. They've also really tried to, uh, come down on VPNs, which is again, a a huge trend worldwide. We're seeing repeatedly authoritarian governments go after not only the tools that people are using for dissent, but the ways that they access those tools or the ways that they circumvent blocks on those tools. Um, so VPNs are very much like the, the crackdown on VPNs is really something I'm watching. But it's become, you know, quite pronounced in Russia. And then obviously we have just like the speed at which different social media apps were blocked. And Mm -hmm. so now essentially what you have is an echo chamber. And as a lot of media has been reporting, that's quite damaging for public opinion on the war. It means like Mm -hmm. the only narrative that's easy to find and that's available is the pro-war narrative, especially considering it's very, very dangerous to speak Mm -hmm. out against the war. The, the pace at which Russia blocked all those social media apps did stand out to me. I was expecting it to happen. I wasn't expecting it to happen that quickly necessarily. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, and you knew that you, I mean, like you said at the beginning, you, you focus on different regions and countries in, in order to see kind of trends. Mm-hmm. And you, so you spoke about Russia and, and Venezuela, but one of the things that I think, I think we've noticed is more and more is that governments seem to be using the power of the law and the, their ability obviously to to pass you know policies to kind of control technology such as block mm-hmm. apps and and or force companies to do do this and that have you seen this as well in different regions yeah this is definitely something that we've been paying attention to we actually have kind of a subset of our authoritarian tech uh coverage that focuses specifically on legal tools and the ways that governments are using the law to sort of amplify the degree to which they can use technology to um to control their populations it's yeah definitely i think a really important trend to be paying attention to it doesn't always make for like the most gripping headlines but it's the it's a really big and important trend um we have a series of stories, a series of uh, videos that we did a few years back. This was actually before I got to CODA, but I've really enjoyed kind of going back and watching these videos. It's called Jailed for a Like, and it's a look at people who were punished in Russia uh, for their posts and social media shares. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've seen happen 
you know, in a lot of different places, particularly during the pandemic, um, people are being uh, jailed and fined and punished for things that they post on social media. And a lot of the time, those laws are rather confusing, mm-hmm. shall we say. So Russia has laws about like, um, you can't offend someone's like religious beliefs or something. I can't remember the exact intricacies of the law, but basically it's a it's like an anti-blasphemy law. Mm-hmm. And people have been punished for things that they posted on TikTok. Like a kid was, was punished for uh, lighting a cigarette in a church. Yeah. Those sorts of like a video in which you lit a cigarette in a church. Um, those sorts of things. We've seen like misinformation laws be used to crack down on people who post in disagreement with government's uh, COVID strategies. That's something that happened a lot during the pandemic, especially in the early days. Um, Yeah, it's, those sorts of laws are definitely an upward trend. I'm also kind of always watching for who is coming out with new cybersecurity laws. Yeah. Uh, Myanmar has been really leaning into this and some of those laws were, were really interesting because um, Myanmar was was trying to pass a law that would prohibit the use of VPNs. So mm-hmm. it makes it illegal for the user to, to use a VPN, which is a huge thing because currently Facebook is blocked in Myanmar. And the yeah. only way to access Facebook is through a VPN. And so you were basically criminalizing Facebook, but without actually being able to criminalize Facebook. So they were criminalizing the way that people access it, which would have a huge impact on the economy Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of businesses are run via Facebook pages and not websites. So that that increase of censorship um, was a hugely controversial law, but that increase of censorship was going through, I can't off the top of my head remember if they actually passed the law. The last I remember there was a lot of back and forth. and civil society was was trying hard to push back. But that's definitely a legal framework in which an already oppressive regime is using the law to manipulate technology to mm-hmm. control the people even further. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's something we're keeping an eye on as well because there is much I feel like we can do against that in a way. Um, another question I had been in your, in your recent newsletter, you also mentioned um, a lot like biometrics, especially in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the use of biometrics in Afghanistan or in other countries, because obviously this is a, again, this is another example of the dual use of technology. It can be very, biometrics, you know, can be very useful. The UN Sustainable mm-hmm. Development Goals even mention them. But what if, this is abuse, uh, such as, you know, by in Afghanistan or Bangladesh. Yeah, I think, so you mentioned Afghanistan and the use of biometrics and this big, big question about what happens if that very sensitive data falls into the wrong hands. Coda Story has a podcast that's coming out later this year that is going to get into a lot of these questions about the ways that technology is fueling authoritarianism around the world. And I highly encourage people to keep an eye out for that podcast from Coda's story later this year. 
it will have some really interesting things on these sorts of subjects. Well, we'll, we'll share it once, it, once it out, it's out for sure. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but I think we can talk broad, like broader if you would like, because um, I do have some sort of thoughts. I guess, so a lot of the times when these biometric systems are rolled out and they become particularly problematic, it's often because some of the countries where these are these systems are in place don't have data protection laws. And so there's not a legal framework for protecting people's rights and sort of putting some guardrails on these systems. So one place where that's particularly important is Pakistan. And I have a colleague who did an incredible series of stories on, uh, on biometrics in Pakistan. Her name is Ali Zay Kahari. And it's an incredible look very in-depth and very, um, it shows, I, you know, I'm biased here being, you know, <laughs> talking about my colleague, but um, it's a really great look at exactly the impact that these sorts of systems have, especially when there isn't, there isn't a framework for really controlling them in a legal way. So uh, I think that sort of is one of the big, reasons why we end up in these situations where data is collected that's incredibly sensitive and then ends up in the wrong hands. Um, because there isn't really a connection between the legal framework and the security framework and political framework of the country with the like interest in building these systems that's coming from an international uh, you know, coalition of countries and of international organizations. Mm -hmm. So that is to say, there's room for more work to be done to understand the political and security context that these systems are being rolled out in. And we sort of have you know, a lot of the, you mentioned the UN um, sustainable development goals. So the UN has been a huge promoter of biometric databases and biometric IDs around the world. So has the World Bank. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of funding and a lot of support comes from that from those groups. Um, but the thing that we're seeing is that sometimes it's, it's, you know, they're rolled out as ways to build efficiency mm. um, and to, you know, diminish the number or lessen the number of people who are living without IDs. So they're not rolled out by any sort of like malicious, yeah. um, you know, malicious goals. They're certainly rolled out for the purposes of getting help to people who need it, but, or in most cases, or at least in the, you know, context of the World Bank and the UN, that's the, that's the goal. Yeah. But what the problem that we run into is that these are very complex systems. Mm -hmm. They're expensive, difficult to run just very, very complicated. And they're also very rigid. And what that means is that it's really hard for people to change things when there's a mistake. So one of the things that Alize uh, points to is, you know, it's really hard to change if there's a mistake in your name or a mistake in your gender. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to change that. Or Kenya is a fantastic example of this as well, where Kenya is, um, there's a number of people who are Kenyan citizens, but for, the intents and purposes of an ID, they're essentially stateless because 
they were registered as refugees by the UNHCR. And then because they're in that database, they're unable to get Kenyan IDs. Hmm. And these are Kenyan citizens. The reason that they were registered as refugees is because there was the famine and people went to refugee camps because it was the way to access resources, mm -hmm. um, you know, basic necessities. And so what we, and those people have been fighting for years to be, uh, to be able to get an ID that would enable them to be like fully fledged Kenyan citizens as they are. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of these times, or, you know, one of the biggest problems with these biometric systems is that they're so rigid. There's not a way to, uh, to change them if they don't work. And mm -hmm. when there are problems, there's not an easy way to fix them. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we're learning as these things roll out worldwide, because they certainly are increasing in the number of countries who are embracing these systems. Yeah. Absolutely. One final question, and, and it's something that you mentioned at the beginning, uh, is how digital authoritarianism is not only an authoritarian mm. country problem. Uh, yeah. We're seeing it in democracies as well. And perhaps one example is um, surveillance, such as the use of Clearview AI, or we had the example of the NSO group, which is mm -hmm. actually based in, in, in Israel, and then yeah. obviously Clearview AI and other kind of you know, Hague Vision or whatever, that, that yeah. these companies that are actually f sell their technologies to um, law enforcement agencies, for example, in the United States or Europe. Perhaps mm -hmm. um, uh, we could talk about this a little bit for, for the last question. Sure. So I think what we can do is kind of combine, um, a we can touch on a couple of different things here. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned Clearview and NSO Group because those are two examples of countries that are exporting surveillance technology, democratic countries, very importantly, that are supporting or are exporting surveillance technology. There's a handful of others as well that jumped to mind. Um, you know, you've got, a, you've got quite a few Israeli companies, mm -hmm. uh, Quadrams is another example, Germany's Finfisher, um, was used to target uh, human rights lawyers and opposition leaders in Bahrain. Mm -hmm. So was Nokia Simmons, which is a Finnish company, Italia, or the Italian company hacking teams um, is another sort of infiltration tool, spyware tool. Mm -hmm. All of these companies um, you know, are coming from a democratic society and then they're being rolled out and purchased by authoritarian governments and used to uh, tighten surveillance on human rights activists, on journalists, on political opposition abroad. And that's a really big, important trend um, in the ways, yeah, the ways that democracies are actually kind of fueling digital, author digital authoritarianism worldwide. Um, there's been a number of conversations about, okay, so what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there are quite enough of those yeah. conversations, um, but it's, you know, one of the big places where we saw that happening was in, was in Myanmar. There was, after the coup in uh, February of 2021, one of the major telecom companies, which is actually, the subsidiary is owned by a Norwegian company called Telenor. Mm -hmm. um, Telenor wanted to sell their Myanmar subsidiary because 
there were threats to their employees and they were saying basically we cannot operate in this environment that's um, you know run by the military junta mm -hmm. so the company's been trying to leave Myanmar um, yeah. but the problem was okay so who's going to buy all of the data and all the contracts that you currently have and that became extremely complicated very quickly because the parties that were or that have have purchased or will purchase i can't remember if the sale has actually gone through um but the leading buyers had ties to the military junta and the concern was that this company was going to leave mm -hmm. and all of the data that they had collected on people as part of their basic services as a telecommunications company it was going to end up in the hands of people who are much more sympathetic to the junta and by extension end up mm -hmm. in the hands of an authoritarian government and so there was this huge conversation about well do you block the sale do you delete the data before mm -hmm. they uh <laughs> before the company is allowed to hand it over to the next uh, buyer mm -hmm. and it just became incredibly complicated and I think one of the things that I illustrated was like we just don't have a really great system for a legal framework for the proliferation of authoritarian technologies mm -hmm. we for don't sure. have a great way of cracking down on spyware we don't have like internationally in terms of like in terms of international laws we just don't have a great way of keeping those situations from happening because I, I think for, for a long time we've had, you know, when taking the surveillance industry as an example, it's there's such a lack of transparency that and we've let it right that 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 industry kind of go about doing their little things for such a long time without any kind of focus that yeah. they we have so much catching up to do that because yeah. in terms of international law, it's not the the wild wild west in a way there are laws it's just now we have to see which ones and how they yeah. can be applied and whether we need something new i mean some some perhaps amendments right exactly yeah i think one of the things i've been really interested in is uh the u.s has the magnitsky sanctions that yeah. can be imposed yeah, yeah um, and there. there's this whole conversation yeah there's this whole conversation about imposing it starting to impose it on specific companies like mm -hmm. uh hype vision and NSO group. Mm -hmm. And what that would enable them to do is to target the leaders of those companies as well with sanctions that would yeah. hypothetically diminish the incentive to spread that technology worldwide. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting tool, but I think what it's what it speaks to is just like there's a lot of different levers that could be pulled. And now we have to figure out what works. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. It was a great time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And I encourage everyone to uh, read Coda and subscribe to the newsletters as well. They're fantastic. Thank you. We have a lot of fun writing them. And one thing I'll say too, Coda is a member-supported newsroom and a lot of the journalism that we do is made possible because people believe in the things that we're doing, they believe in the importance of standing up um, against disinformation and holding people accountable and holding governments accountable for the rise of digital authoritarianism. So I, I know that I'm biased here, but would be very, <laughs> very pleased if 
people would become CODA story members. It is really the thing that keeps a lot of our journalism uh, going and makes it possible for us to do this work. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.